Westman, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, Romans 12. Romans 12, that is our springboard for today. That's where we'll be tethered to. Romans 12, first two verses. And today, indeed, we begin our consideration of the theme of worship. Theme of worship. The opening verses of Romans 12, even if you give them a brief scan right now, those opening verses will help us to do just that. Let's read them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Westmount, the matter of worship is of the utmost importance to our Lord. It's one of those statements that hardly needs to be said. It's just true in every respect, certainly revealed, self-evident, and so on. The matter of worship is of the utmost importance to our Lord. And according to our Bibles, what's in your hand, according to our knowledge of God, this makes sense. Because he is worthy of worship. He is worthy to be praised, adored, and exalted. What have we been singing this morning? He is worthy to be praised. We all believe it, and here it is. We all know that. We know that. Some may ask, how is he worthy of worship? Why is he worthy of worship? Some may ask that. Well, the heavenly chorus in Revelation 4 and 5 tell us, I, I find no greater expression of the fullness of time worship, the way that it should be than in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4, you have the four living creatures, remember them? In chapter 4, what did they say? Day and night, they never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What about the 24 elders? Remember, they take their crowns and they cast them before the throne? And what did they say then? They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to what? Receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And then together, the four living creatures and the 24 elders in chapter 5, they come together with the prayers of the saints the prayers of those persecuted saints together, right? Like an incense, a sweet aroma to God, they offer this to God. They say, worthy are you, this is now to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy are you. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then what about the heavenly chorus? It just keeps going in chapter 5. The myriads of angels, the thousands upon thousands, with a loud voice. In verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Unending worship. And then this. When, as verse 13, Revelation 5 says, one day, beloved, consider with me, one day every creature in heaven on earth will say this. Every creature. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Indeed, one day every knee shall bow. Because this, here it is, is what is right. God deserves this worship. This is what he is due. This, we're talking about the supremacy of all things. We're not talking about these things, the supremacy of all things. This is what he is due. Worship is a matter of giving God what he is due. God is worthy of worship because he is, did you hear it? Holy and pure and perfect. That's why we give him worship. God is worthy of worship because he is sovereign, majestic, and mighty. It's not just a good refrain, it is true. He is sovereign over the entire globe. God, our Lord, is worthy of worship because of his sacrificial, sufficient, atoning work. Did you hear the chorus? Worthy are you, worthy is the Lamb. The Lamb. Worship, as the chorus in Revelation tells us, is indeed a matter of worth. He is worthy. Worship, hence, is giving God what he is due. It's giving God what he is due. The English word, if you think about worship with me, again, we're setting our hearts with introductory matters in this series. The English word worship is taken from that old English variant, that Anglo-Saxon word, which means worthiness. That's what worship means. Worship in the English word actually means worthiness. And worthiness is a matter of due giving. When we say something's worthy, we're saying they're due. You must give them their due. And it is giving to God what he deserves. And beloved, I want you to note the direction when we say that. It is what we give to God. Do you see that direction? What we give to him. That's worship. And we need to mention that to start this series because the modern church has this backwards. The modern church has this completely backwards. Today, underneath the presentation of worship is a sense of what God gives me. Does that not sound familiar? What does God give me? That's an aspect of worship. Today, people leave a church building, a church service, and what do you hear? What did you get out of that? What did you get out of that? Today, church websites promote what they will give you if you come to their church. Here you are, consumer. Here's what we're going to give you. Just come. Just come, and we will give you this. That's not worship. That's marketing. Today, the modern worshiper is really in the self-worship business. I mean, if we really peel back the layers, that's what's going on today in the modern church. Self-worship. Consumerism. Yet the Bible knows nothing of that kind of worship. Page after page, you can go through Scripture and you'll find none of that consumer worship in the Bible. None of it. Search it top to bottom and you will find no worship that says it's about what you, human, receive. Now, to be clear, God does give us something, things, and we do receive things, but we call that blessing, not worship. That's blessing. Biblical worship is us giving to God. Yet that is not our only error in worship. We are fallen beings prone to so many errors. Biblical worship is not selective. Biblical worship is not just what you're coming here to do this morning or when we do Wednesday nights and then that's it and you put it on the shelf until the next time. Biblical worship is for every time. Back to the ancient marching orders in Deuteronomy. Moses giving this to the people again 
right? The Israelites, God's people, the, the second telling, Deuteronomy. What does he say in chapter 6, verse 4? Before that next generation enters the promised land. Here is the marching order. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, you know, if we left worship there, many today would just import that and say, yeah, I do that. I feel that worship. But here's the implication. This is why we love God's word, isn't it? Here is what that, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, should look like in our lives. We continue to read. You shall teach them diligently to your children on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. No. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When is worship? All the time. All the time. Whole life worship. People of God, Westmount, worship is a 24-7 affair. Tonight, tomorrow, do you worship? Will you worship? Biblical worship is not also just a good times thing. It's not just for the mountaintop. Biblical worship is for the lowest valley of the low. Do you remember David lost a son after his transgression with Bathsheba and Uriah having him killed? Do you remember? God said, you're forgiven. In a sense, there will be consequences. Your kingdom, your family, and your son. Do you remember when David lost his son, when everyone was in the palace and there's a scene where they're all afraid to tell David, we can't possibly tell him, he may go jump off a cliff, right? That his son is dead. They're all afraid to tell him. David says, tell me what's going on with my son. And how is his response? Hearing that his son is dead. You talk about the lowest valley of the low. 2 Samuel 12, 20 records David's response. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. What about Job? Job, after he found out he lost his cattle... His property, his sons, his daughters. You get that sweeping vista in chapter 1 and you think it can't get worse than this. Job, how are you going to respond? And remember, that was what Satan wanted to demonstrate. Take that all away, God, and watch what he will do. Well, Job 1.20 records his response. It says, Job fell on the ground and worshipped the lowest valley of the low. Sadly, you don't see that character of biblical worship taught today, right? And what is the driver of modern worship? I don't feel it. I'm just not feeling it. And then, by the way, have you noticed sometimes that gets uh, moved into our Bible reading? I'm just not feeling my Bible today. Then, the next step after that is obedience. Well, God knows I just don't feel like obeying him today. All flowing from a wrong and errant view of worship. It all stems. You see how worship is the fountainhead for how we live our lives, or at least how we should. Biblical worship is for every day, every time, every dimension of life. Biblical worship in all that we are, and biblical worship that seeks to give God what he alone is worthy of. 
Biblical worship is the Israelites were taught in the wilderness, as David and Job both knew very well, is rooted in who God is. True worship is a right response to who God is. That makes sense. We do that with so much else. Always astonishes me the reverence people give to the royal family. Right? Why? Because of their character? No, no. Because of who they are. Well, what if one who is perfect in name and perfect in character, what does he do? What does he do? Accordingly, then, let me give you a definition for us as we begin. This is just a working definition. What's well, more than that? But as we begin this series in worship, and I pray it's something you can hang your hat on as we descend over these few weeks. Worship is the believer's response of all that he or she is, body, mind, and will, to all that God is and says and does. Pray you tracked with me. Let me say it again. Worship is the believer's response of all that he or she is, body, mind, and will, to all that God is and says and does. Do you feel the comprehensive nature of that? This is a holistic sense to worship as the Bible presents. Now, that definition is not random. That's just not a neatly crafted thing picked out from the sky. That comes right from the passage open in front of you. Look at it with me. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Let's look at it. This passage here in Romans 12 is going to be, like I mentioned off the top, our springboard for today, our anchor. And this will contain pieces that we just talked about in the definition. But also, this is a very important definition, and it's an appropriate platform, because you see... The therefore in verse 1, and we at Westmount know as we have studied this kind of thing, looking at God's word, the little cues, the hermeneutical cues, the therefore tells us that this is based on something. In fact, that therefore is a huge therefore because it points back to the first 11 chapters, which is what? Who God is and what God has done by way of the gospel. And there's a huge therefore at the beginning of Romans 12 that says, in light of who God is and what he's done, do you see that by the mercies of God? In light of that, therefore, this. That's what we'll look at. In other words, in response to who God is and what God says and all that he has done, here, Christian, is your command in Romans 12. This is your prescription for worship. That's what these two verses are. Whole life worship Outlined with our first domain in verse 1, it says this, we worship with our bodies. We worship with our bodies. The first command there in verse 1 is indeed in light of the mercies of God, the gospel. Let's read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our bodies, yes, that is our physical bodies, are to be presented in worship. Right there in verse 1. Now what you need to see immediately here is the manner of that presentation. So let's track here, the manner of it. This body presentation is not location. Do you see this? Get the psalm of ascents and in the psalms and the ancient people of God would, would literally make that pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. There's a place for that, and we're going to talk about that throughout this series. But that's not here. This is not a come forward, come church, move your physical location from there to here. No, that's not what's in view here with the body. 
Neither is this the body presentation that is addition. This is not a matter of addition. This is not adding something to your schedule or rounding out your calendar or making sure your body is in this place. That's not what this is at all. This body presentation is what? Well, look at verse 1. It says, a living sacrifice. In worship, our body is to be presented, look at it, very specifically, as a living sacrifice. Now, we're going to get to the living aspect of that in a moment. But first, let's review what we know about dead sacrifices. Turn to the book of Leviticus. What do we know about sacrifice? Many of you hear the word sacrifice, and you do think Old Testament, rightly so. Well, let's just, by way of brief review, remind ourselves what a sacrifice is is, as it's in view here in Romans 12. Leviticus, we'll just start at the very beginning. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Immediately we see, and this is under the law, of course, this is the way that the ancient people of God gave to God, in a sense. This is very much a, 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 an emblem, a symbol Uh, A giving forth of something. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. So offering what? Not just anything. Offering an animal. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So bringing it to the place of worship. You see that? And that he may be accepted before the Lord. So there's a sense where there's an offering. It's an animal. It's a thing. And it's brought to the place of worship. And it needs to be offered before the Lord. Look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Interesting. Then verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. So there's your word. This is the dead sacrifice. Do you see that? It's an animal that's been killed and is now being offered for sacrifice. Look down at verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats... He shall bring a male without blemish. Same idea. And what? He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Look at chapter 3. Verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace, note the language. Sacrifice. Offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it. The entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 7, if he offers a lamb for his offering, he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. You get the same in verse 12 and 13. If you go to chapter 4, verse 4, it says to take the bull and to kill the bull before the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. Laying the hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and what? Kill it. Go down to verse 24 of chapter 4. The head of the goat, different animal, place it, kill it, offer it as a burnt offering before the Lord. We could go on, and of course, there's so much more in there in between those killing prescriptions, right? And we only go there, Westmont, to remind ourselves that these are sacrifices to God. Lots of sacrifices, lots of animals needed every day, every month, every year. So we would have been very familiar, and certainly the Jews would have been, at this idea of sacrifice, giving something to God. That's the key, giving something, but something that would have been dead. That's that's it, dead to God. 
animals killed and placed on the altar as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. In the sense, the law is filled with that. Now, the law gave all kinds of prescriptions on how those sacrifices were to be. And we don't have time to go through all of Leviticus. And I know for many of you, often it's, it's hard at times, all the blood in Leviticus, all the offerings. But what is in there? If you look very carefully when you read Leviticus, very specific prescriptions for how to give an offering, right? How to give this sacrifice. It's all there. Holy, many of the prescriptions say, pure, spotless, clean, acceptable. There is an order of preparing that sacrifice to give to God. And don't miss that. And of course, that was, we recognize in Leviticus, in the law, that was worship under the old covenant. Worship under the old covenant. But mark this, Westmount. It was worship. There's a sense where you see atonement language, we learn when we come to the New Testament and we see the Son of God, and particularly books like Hebrews, this truly wasn't paying the price for sin. This was worship. More that we'll say on that in a moment. We learned in Galatians, our study of Galatians, Galatians 3.19, why was it not taking away sin? Why was it ineffective as it would be? Because it was imperfect. Imperfect. Even the most spotless lamb, right, was still imperfect. Even the most uh, blamelessly walking uh, Israelite was still imperfect. There was still a flaw, Hebrews 10, in that old system. It It was a system of worship. And this is what in our study Galatians, not to go back to all of those, the end of the law has come because the perfect one has come, Christ. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ, once for all at the end of the ages, has put away sin by the sacrifice of what? Himself. That's what the book of Hebrews is telling us, that Bill was talking about the better. Well, Christ is the better, the best sacrifice, the only sacrifice, because he is indeed perfect. And he has come once for all. And that, of course, is a sacrifice that Tony took us through last week, remember? The Lamb of God hanging on the cross. And what did he say on the cross? It is finished. It's done. Perfect lamb making atonement for his people. And to be clear this morning, especially as we endeavor to talk about sacrifice, that one-time sacrifice of Christ was enough. And here it is, sufficient for past, present, and future. You see that? That's what the saints of old were looking forward to. They might not have understood the inefficiency of, of the goat sacrifices, but they knew they had to do it as an act of worship. What we learn now, looking back on church history, is that that one-time sacrifice was for all of those for all time that would repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus. An act of worship, and that's the key, friends. It's an act of worship. So sacrifice here now, as we come to Romans 12, what are we talking about? If the sacrifice, right, was an act of worship then, and it stands to reason these sacrifices are an act of worship now. Let's just comment on a few words as you turn back to Romans 12. Pray it's helpful to to look at some of these things. Paul says what? I appeal to who? You brothers. Brothers. That is directed to us, Christian. The sacrifice in view then is not salvation. This is not people that are listening, you need to do this to be in right standing with God. No, this is to brothers. Do you see that? 
These are people already atoned for, soaked in the blood of Christ, saved, redeemed, brothers. There is nothing that's going on here in Romans 12 that's contributing to your salvation. I so appreciated what Tony said last week. It's nothing short of an abomination to think that we can add to the efficient, perfect work of Christ. That's not what's in view here at all. No, 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 no. However, like the therefore tells us, the sacrifice is in response to something. And here it's in response to Romans 1 to 11, which is the gospel. Christ's completed sufficient work. So this is not how you gain salvation. This is how you respond to the salvation you already have. An act of worship. Two, Paul has an adjective there. It's a descriptive word. He doesn't just say sacrifice. What does he say? What's the descriptor? A living sacrifice. Now, isn't that interesting? You can immediately see, well, this is very different to the Old Testament economy. This tells us, as opposed to the continual dead offerings in Leviticus under the law, that this new covenant expression is a living one. And remember, this is an expression of worship, just like it was with the old, it is in the new. And in both cases, I pray you track with me here, This is not about salvation. Those Old Testament Israelites, as much as some may have felt this, weren't gaining justification with God through that system. But what was it? What did we learn in Galatians? It was a way to remain in right relationship, to walk in step with their God. That's worship, right? You have the Old Testament economy. You have the New Testament way. The Old Testament had dead animals, first sacrifices had the law. New Testament now, and we'll get to all the mechanics behind this, there's a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. Not dead, living. And Paul tells us that this sacrifice is different. This is a new covenant sacrifice. Three, the end of verse one calls this our spiritual worship. If you're reading from the NIV, it says your true and proper worship. Those of you with an NASB, it says your spiritual service of worship. And then, of course, the King James says your reasonable service. You think, well, where does that come from? That actually is not a bad translation at all, reasonable service, because that word, if you look at it there, in terms of spiritual worship, what's behind that? That's the word latreia in the original language. And that is one of two words in the New Testament for worship. The other one, proskuneo, we're going to get to later in the series, but this one is very apt for this time. This word, Latreia, points directly, here it is, to our response in worship and the manner of that response. And this is where the King James says reasonable. Is it a reasonable response in light of who God is? You see that? This word is very specific. It's so often, I tell many people, I like the Greek language. It's just so specific. This is worship. It's not just one word. It's this aspect of worship, that you respond rightly to God, hence your reasonable service to God. You can see it's fitting for this direct gospel response in, verse, in Romans 12. So the sacrifice in view here is us, church, you and I, and our ongoing lives that are lived as sacrifices. And again, we're going to Come back to that over and over. We are the sacrifices, the living sacrifices, in such a way, right, that we live appropriately. We live reasonably. We live in light of the gospel that's already done. This is about giving God what he's due. And that's the way, friends, it's always been. The New Testament here is not giving us something new. And here's the danger at times. We 
We think everything is all new with the new covenant. And it's true, there is a discontinuity there with the New Testament. But really, this is no different in principle to what those ancient people of God were doing. Offering worship. The vessels, of course, are different. But here, as you turn to the book of Exodus, we will see that there is nothing new. Exodus 34, by way as you're turning there, remember in Exodus 32, you have that gross incident of rebellion. You remember the golden calf? People of God just given the law, right, from Sinai. And they get a little restless because Moses is still on Sinai. And they look for other objects of worship. And they erect a calf, a golden calf. Of course, Moses comes down, throws the tablets down. He intercedes in chapter 33. And as we come to chapter 34, new tablets are made. New tablets are made. And God, again, with his covenant love expresses by way of renewing this covenant in light of the mercy he's showing on them, in light of the rebellion, says this. Let's pick it up in chapter 34, verse 6. This is Moses and God, and God is giving Moses what he will give to the people. The Lord passed before him, verse 6, and proclaimed, here it is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Stop there for a moment. That is your expression of who God is. Do you see that? God says, this is who I am. And and in a sense, you get the mercy through all of that. In spite of what they've done, I'm going to show them mercy. So this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And what's the response? Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is a right response to a revelation of God and not only who he is, but what he's done. What about the one that would take the baton from Moses? You know him as Joshua. In Joshua 5, he encounters the commander of the Lord's army, which is most likely the Lord himself. The Lord himself. Chapter 5, verse 14, Joshua in response says this, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. That is coming face-to-face with God, right? This is not slapping his arms around him, right? No, this is falling prostrate before God because he is holy, because he is holy. In the very least, in those two accounts of Moses and Joshua, we see that there is and should be a bodily effect on knowing our God and knowing what he's done. But Westmount, it's so much more than that. Turn to the book of Daniel. Turn in the book of Daniel. It's so much more. A bodily effect, yes, but even here, not to the extent that we've been taught today. Consider the worship that we see with Daniel and his friends. Go to Daniel 3. Daniel, of course, uh, is in Babylon with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when you get to chapter 3, there's that most famous incident of the fiery furnace. And just by way of bringing up to speed, these are the three friends that will not bow to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They will not. Nebuchadnezzar erects an image, wants everyone to bow and worship to it. And they say, no. No. Pick it up in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love the boldness. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and here it is, or what? Worship the golden image that you've set up. 
There's so many modern day applications to this, I must resist. I have to resist. They will not bow down. They will not bow down to the Caesar of the day. No, we will not do this. And think about this. There's a fiery furnace, as the text is going to tell us, jacked up seven times in heat. So much so that those tending to it are going up in flames. Was to further the story along, Nebuchadnezzar, they thrown in there. Nebuchadnezzar walks by and he notices there's not just three there, there's four of them. And he says, who's in there with them? Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, says, verse 26, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Oh, if we could meditate on those words. The power of Caesar has no power over us. The flaming fires, the regimes, no power. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. And then listen to this from verse 28. This is from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God. He's giving praise to who? God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command. And what did they do as worship? Yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Did you catch that? They yielded up their body. This is not abstaining for something for two hours. This is not choosing not to do this. This says, take my body. I will go in that furnace. You can turn it 14 times as hot, and I will go in there because I will not bow down to Caesar. I will not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. That, we're talking about bodily worship says, take my body. Not just bow, take it all. This is bodily worship that offers up one's entire frame. It says, take this flesh. Yet as edifying as the example of these Old Testament saints are, and I pray they are this morning for you, an edification in such times, they're not alone in this. Again, this is not Old Testament stuff. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Why would I pray we're getting comfortable turning around in our Bibles this morning. It's so important as we open this series. 1 Corinthians 6. The Corinthian church was what? A very immature, fleshly church. Were they not? Prone to so many sins. Prone, here it is. The Corinthians were prone to do this. Take their bodies and not yield them up to God, but take their bodies and indulge in the flesh. With any pagan thing, prostitutes, immorality, you name it, they would take their bodies and yield them up in that way. Well, here, as Paul is doing so often through this letter, this is a grand letter of course correction, of lovingly fatherly correction to these saved Corinthians, but they needed instruction. Let's pick it up, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's the truth we're getting at here. Your body is a member of Christ. That's why we say the body of Christ. Listen to what he says. Shall I then take the members of Christ, my body, and make them members of a prostitute? As uncomfortable as this is for all of us this morning, I want you to think about that. How in the world can we take our bodies and join them with a prostitute? You would never do that. This is a holy vessel. Why would you do that? By the way, we're not just talking physical. All forms of pornea and pornography, we would never do that. Our bodies are vessels of Christ, but he continues. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord, there it is, becomes one spirit with him. You are of the Lord. Your body is the Lord's. You worship with your body. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is defilement of the inward case. And then this, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Listen. The ancient Israelites went to the temple. They ascended. They made a pilgrimage to a temple, to a place. And next week, we're going to learn places are still important. Contrary to popular thinking, this is important and places are important. But for the sake of this text this morning, the place central to all of your spiritual worship is right here. This, your body. It's a temple, the text says, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, your body, giving it up to God. And here, it's not just a head bow or a furnace visit. We're talking about everything in between. How are you yielding up your body, the members of your body to God, as an act of worship? What does that look like in your life? Same thing in Romans 6.13. Paul says, do not present your members, so your bodily parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Rather, present your members, your bodies, to God as here it is, instruments of righteousness. We're going to go through Exodus this fall, and often, if you've been like me in the past, you wonder why the reams and reams of talking about the temple tabernacle instruments. Why the precision? What's no different in this sense to our bodies, right? God cares about how we worship him. He cares about the vessels of his worship. And if he cared so much about the golden bowls and the lampstands and the altars, let me tell you something. He cares so much more about your body. How are you offering worship in your body? God cares very much more than we think. Church, we worship with our bodies. That means we bow down before a holy God. We are low before him. That means we offer up our bodies if need be rather than bow down to any other body. It means we consider that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, that means we caretake our bodies. We caretake our bodies even more. We keep our bodies from evil intakes. Keep our bodies from evil intakes. Worship with our bodies means our bodies are not our own. Have you not been bought with a price? Your body is the Lord's. It means this, to put a capstone on this first point, it means that whether we eat, whether we drink, it means whatever we do, we do it all to what? The glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So we worship with our bodies too. We worship with our minds. Here we have two commands, back in Romans now, two commands, one negative, one positive. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's the negative and the positive. Don't do this, but do this. I want you to pause and consider that first command from God again. What does it say? Do not be conformed to this world. I just want to submit to you this morning, in this time, there is probably not a command that we take more lightly than this one. This is the kind of command, I'm giving you my opinion, yes. We just gloss over this. Don't be conformed to the world, of course. Of course, I would never do that. But like sheep, we've all gone astray. And just follow the world. And everything. And it tells us what. That command says what? Don't. Do not be shaped and conformed by the world. 
That world conformity is not only possible, but beloved, this text in the first century tells us it was happening then, and listen to me, it is so happening now. It's happening right now. Sadly, many church people are being conformed not to the image of Christ, but they're being conformed to the shape of the world. That's what's going on in the church. And again, I will say nothing more than this, that it is happening in waves today. Professors of God looking more and more like the world than their professed Savior. So how do we combat this world conformity? Well, we consider the second command here. So this is what you don't do. Word of God always says, never leaves you with the put off, right? What does the word of God do? The word of God says, do this. Don't just lay that off, do this. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is active, that's ongoing. This is constant renewal and sanctification. And of note, this is noticeably absent, as I just mentioned, and those professing Christ today, beloved, I wouldn't mention it time and again if it wasn't a wide-scale epidemic. People being conformed to the world and not Christ. What we have today is autopilot thinking. What we have today is easy believism, not just in salvation. We have easy believism in living life. People that just believe everything. We have a wide-scale abandonment of, here it is, market, critical, active, engaged, biblical thought. It's gone. We have minds that are conformed to the world. So what do we have? We have, have you heard it? We have open minds. you got to have an open mind. And what happens? They're open to everything. We have pacified minds, pacified minds that are trained to watch screens for hours. We have carnal minds that just want to consume and be entertained, where the remote is just an extension of their hand. We have world-conformed minds, then we want to bring that world conformity into worship. And what do you think happens when you do that? Beloved, is it any wonder that we have a problem with proper worship today? Because we're conformed to the world. We want to bring world conformity to the Lord. You just... Look at your Old Testament, Leviticus 10, and tell me how that goes. How can a mind conformed to the world think to properly worship God? How can a mind that thinks like the world, there it is, that thinks like the world, worship with the mind of Christ? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So that's every single thing you hear in the world. Every news item, blog, and article that is not tethered to orthodox Christianity and good reformed doctrine, every single one, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. Do you see that? Yes, you are to judge. You are to judge all things, and I hope you're judging. I hope you're judging but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have what? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. If you're in Christ today, you have that mind. And beloved, the problem is not that we do not have it. The problem is that we do not use it. You have the mind of Christ, but so many of us, and listen, I hear it, I'm guilty too at times, want to take that mind of Christ and put it on a shelf. Because can I submit to you, especially in times like this, it's just easy. It's easier to swim upstream, isn't it? And be liked by everybody, rather than to put on the mind of Christ and take a stand for your king. 
It's easy to be mindless because it's our default position in our depravity. But church, we are renewed creatures. And we are renewed creatures, redeemed, not that we can fall back into our old hardware. You talk to any programmer here, as I look at our brother Jerry over there, you use old hardware, that would be the folly to any technical guy today. Yeah, I just want to use my Commodore 64 to do this. And what in the world are you talking about? But even more, even more, God has given you something brand new. We're not even talking about technology. He's given you something brand new. And what does he say here? Use it. I give you a mind not to think like them, not to assimilate like them. You're not a lemming like them. Use your mind of Christ that I give you. It's all over scripture. Mark it. Colossians 3.10 says, this is in the active, by the way, put on the new self, which is what? Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Isn't that just flush with activity? Flush with mental activity. Put on the new mind. Think like Christ. Ephesians 4.23, could it be more direct than this? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Church, you cannot worship the true and living God with your old mind. It is impossible. Your old mind is of the flesh. You cannot worship the king without thought. That's old self-worship. That is worship that loves the music without thinking of the lyrics. That's worship that loves an author's writing. Oh, it's a great yarn without thinking of what they believe and what they're trying to teach you. It's worship that says yes to everything without thinking about anything. Christian, that mindless worship is not you. Why, beloved? Because you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind, you have the perfect mind of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, filter all things through that mind. Jesus commands us to use our mind to worship him and love him. You know this well. You heard it in Deuteronomy 6, but isn't it interesting? Jesus references it. In the Gospels, Luke 10, 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and with all your mind, every ounce of your mind, love him, worship him. Church, put most simply, are you thinking as you worship, however it is, or is it just a sensual experience? Is it all body and feelings and no mind? We all love words like unplugged and vegetate, but are we engaged with what we're worshiping? And worship is all of life. Are you mindful before you do things? Beloved, are you mindful before you do anything? If you can do it before a holy God. Worship is a mental endeavor. Worship is thoughtful. Worship pays attention. Church, God's word tells us that we worship with our minds. End of verse two. Bear with me just a few more minutes. We finish up here. We worship with our will. We worship with our will, with our bodies, our minds, and our wills. I want you to look at verse two again, Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And here it is, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're talking about the will here, and it's been said that the will is powerful. Let me give you this. The mind controls the body, but what controls the mind? The will. The will. Here, here's your horsepower right now when you talk about Christian living, holy, sanctified living, your will. Here we've come to the driver of all our worship. It's our volition and our will. Now, whose will is in view here? And this is important. Whose will is in view? God's. God's. That's because we worship with our will. Beloved, our choices, our volition, our desire. Yet saying that, we recognize we have a problem with our wills, don't we? We are a very stubborn lot, are we not? I'm there. Very stubborn. I love my own will. 
We wouldn't admit this, but we would rather secretly, maybe we wouldn't orate it, that God bow to our will. This perversion is as old as humanity itself. Think about the first siblings. Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. They're the two professions of the two brothers. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, there's the same language, of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, we don't have to get into what the difference is there. I'd even suggest to you, I think it's even implied through those words. But here it is. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, he had no regard. Cain was very angry and his face fell. This is the stubborn reaction, right? The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is desires for you, but you must rule over it. And of course, Cain's response, he spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him, killed him. Cain would not let go. Cain is your picture of that, just that stubborn will. No, it's my will, God, even though you're telling me this, no. God's will was that Cain do well, worship rightly with an acceptable offering, yet Cain was stubborn. Cain's will worshiped himself, and hence the end was sin. That's the bad Old Testament example of will worship. I want you to consider another. We're not going to turn there now, but Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Think about Hannah. And what does she say? Hannah, of course, is barren. She's pouring out her heart. When they think she's drunk at the temple, she's pouring out her heart to God in worship. She says, when she's accused, she says, No, I, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And think about now what she yields up to the Lord. The Lord grants her request. As they go home and they worship, the text says in verse 19. And what does she say in response? As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may be here in the presence of the Lord. And that, that passage ends with this. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. She yielded up her son. She begged God for a son, right? And think about all the modern reasons why one would want a child. Hannah begs to have a child, why? So she can yield up that little body to who? The Lord. That's worship. That's worship. Of course, if you were to turn to 1 Samuel 15, you have, of course, the, another example of wrong worship. But here's the key when we think about passages like Saul who falsely went, wrongly went, and sacrificed while waiting for Samuel at Gilgal. And when Samuel comes to him, he excoriates him, and what does he say? And remember, Saul says, look, I did the thing. I sacrificed. I cut and chopped up and offered. I had people do that. How many of us would hide behind? Look, I did what I was called to do. And then this in verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's in the Old Testament. To obey is better than sacrifice. They had it then. They knew there was something more that mattered to God. Psalm 51, 17, for many of us, a beloved psalm. David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, will you not despise? This is about the heart the will, a heart that's broken and determined for the Lord. We worship with our will when we say like Christ, Father, what? Your will be done. 
Church, this is why the New Testament is filled with commands, not guidelines or suggestions. We do not worship if we feel like it. We worship always in obedience to God. Here's your simple takeaway on this last point. Every act of obedience is an act of worship. Can I say that again? Every act of obedience is an act of worship. Don't miss it. Holding your tongue in that conversation, taking that thought captive, serving others, all of it. We can go on and on in act of worship before God. Obedience is an act of the will in submission, in worship to God. How do you think those three guys were fine in the furnace? How do you think Hannah gave up her son? And on and on goes. Because their wills were sold out to God. Like Christ, their Savior, who for some look forward to, set the example by obeying the Father's will, and beloved, so do we. Church, the sacrifice of God is an offering of the will. We worship with our will, a way of a heart that yields its desires to God. A couple comments, and then we will close. William Temple, the 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, said this. I absolutely love this description of worship. Hear it. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. Oh, that, may that be true of us. That is, church, whole life worship. Westmount, that's whole life worship. That's your body, your mind, and your will. Not looking to get or take, but all of your nature giving to God what he's due. Why? Because he is worthy. Now, last point. Some of you want something practical before we close. I'm that one. I always like the practical, right? Give me something to sink my teeth into. I want specifics. I get that. I relate. But whole life worship is not like that, this message, nor does the Bible give us a how-to on whole life worship. However, when we think about what the Bible does give us, it gives us some very clear pictures. And you would say, oh, yeah, like David and Job. Indeed, they worshiped. But what did that worship look like, right? It says David worshiped and Job worshiped. You say, did they get up and start singing? Because I know worship is singing. Maybe. That's not what's in view. We'll look at that later on in this series. What about gathering? David just got together with other saints to be encouraged, like a Sunday morning like this. That was his worship. Maybe, and we'll talk about that in this series, maybe prayer. Maybe he worshiped in prayer, right? Like Anna in Luke 2. Maybe, and we'll talk about that as well. For sure, those are aspects of worship, but they're merely pieces, and they're merely expressions. Yet again, the question begs as we close now, what does whole life worship look like? Well, instead of me telling you, I just want to show you. And this is it. Turn to Genesis 22. Many of you are familiar with this passage. This is Abraham, one of the first of faith toward God. And he is tested in Genesis 22. Like Hannah, very much like Daniel and his friends and I'll just let the text speak for itself. After these things, chapter 22, verse 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wow. Take your son and kill him for me. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He didn't miss a beat, right? Early in the morning, he obeyed. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And here it is. I and the boy will go over there and worship. 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 And come again to you. 
What is Abraham going to do on that mountain? He's going to offer up his son. He's going to offer up his son as an act of worship to God. That's what worship looks like. That's yielding up everything of who he is. Think what's bound up there. All the promises that God gave him, right? When he called him out of Ur. Can you just imagine all of that? Take it. Of course, it reminds us of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Church, in light of that offering on the cross, that sacrifice of a son, of Jesus Christ, like we learned last week, A sacrifice, the sacrifice, so we could be living sacrifices. Church, by that mercy of God, we must and can offer our bodies, minds, and wills to a holy God. We offer our whole life to God as a living sacrifice. That's what we do now. That is our worship. Father, we thank you for this instruction from your word. We thank you, Lord, for the examples, not just the commands of what whole life worship looks like. Lord, may we be obedient. And may we offer up our whole life to you as an act of worship, Lord. Conform our will, mind, body, all of it to you so that we give you what you are due, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.